Hello, Marvelites. You're listening to Marvel's The Polis for new comics on sale December 11th, 2019. I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M. And I'm Tucker Marcus. Tucker, that is a nice sweater. Oh, hey, thanks. Our friend and colleague that I've previously talked about once or twice on the show, Mark Buckwhites, calls me uh, Wiki, which is what Willem Dafoe's character calls Robert Pattinson's character in The Lighthouse. It's wow. That and then... On my birthday, a bunch of people were like making "We're gonna get you lighthouse themed gifts" jokes to me. So uh, you know, people know me in that way around here. I... Yeah, that's good. Yeah. You're building a brand. Yeah. <laughs> Anybody out there listening wants to send lighthouse themed uh, paraphernalia gifts to Tucker? You know, tweet them. <laughs> Please do. Yeah. I would love it. What's your Twitter? At, at Tucker Marcus M A R K U S. Do it. I would yeah. love that. I, I'm excited to see that. All right. Uh, let's get into the show because every week we talk about all the new comics that come out. There's a really great bunch of collections this week and uh, some stuff that's hitting Marvel Unlimited. Tucker, why don't you kick us off with the new books? All right, let's start. We're going ahead with Arrow number six. This is like every Arrow issue comprised of two stories. The first one is called Madame Huang. This is the reprint story of Arrow's original origin story. It's written by Zhao Lifen with art by Kang and adaptation by Greg Pak. As with every single one of these reprint stories, I'm so into it because I'm really starting to feel a sense of continuation of the character. It feels like we really know who they are and now we're moving into kind of the second act of this story. It's really, really cool. And then the second story is called Arrow and Wave Origins and Destinies Part 6. That's written by Greg Pak and Alyssa Wong with art by Pop Mon and colors by Federico Blee with letters by VCs Joe Caramagna throughout the whole dang thing. Look, no matter what context you put Arrow and Wave for me, these are two of my favorite new characters. We've been talking about some of our favorite things of 2019 here at the House of Ideas, and everything in the entire realm of Agents of Atlas has to be way up there for me. So as we continue this story with kind of stalwart great Greg Pak and new all-star Alyssa Wong, who I can't wait to see do bigger and bigger and better things here, it's just great stuff across the board. That last story ties into Atlantis Attacks. Yes. Atlantis Attacks is uh, the story that we're going to be talking about in the new year. I believe it starts in 2020 in mm-hmm. January. Mm-hmm. Also on This Week in Marvel, our sister show, I will be doing a talk about Atlantis Attacks. I'm going to do some more research and then uh, tie into some other stuff that's going on, give you a little Namor, a little Atlantis Attacks. It's going to be fun. Why haven't we done a like top 10 shirtless Namor Get panels? on that. Oh, Come my on. God. All right. Oof. Mental note. Oof. Okay. All right, up next is Age of Conan Valeria, number five. This is the final issue of this limited series. It is written by Meredith Finch with art by Anike, colors by Andy Troy. And this one is really about revenge turning to forgiveness, turning to understanding and moving on. It, it is interesting looking at the different stages of grief that Valeria goes through in this storyline. She is this character who, as far as I understand, didn't have a huge part in the Conan lore, but this book has fleshed her out so much. It's been really cool and puts her in a really neat place. And then at the end of this is another one of the brand new prose stories for the Conan universe. And this one is by Matt Forbeck. It is The Fall of Tothamon. And as I've said, the previous couple of parts have been my favorite of all the prose stories. Next up, we have Amazing Mary Jane, number three. This is written by Leah Williams with art by Carlos Gomez and Lucas Wernick, colors by Carlos Lopez and letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. It's so cool to see this character, who's not a superhero, put at the center of her own story. Because while she doesn't have superhero powers, it's so cool to see the super qualities that she does have come to the fore. She's on set. She's working. She's 
doing her actor business. Um, that's what it's called in yep. Hollyweird. And then you have Vulture, Rhino, a bunch of Spidey villains kind of wreaking havoc uh, across the board. So it's cool to see MJ's resolve, her fieriness, her fight in a way that is very human, but really gets at the heart of what makes this character so special. And Leah Williams, her take on this character, I think, is super special. And uh, with every passing issue, I'm just more and more happy and more and more excited that Amazing Mary Jane is a thing. Heck yeah. yeah. Something I'm very happy is the thing is Annihilation Scourge. And we have two issues this week. The first of which is Beta Ray Bill, which is written by Michael Morrissey, art by Alberto Albuquerque, colors by J. David Ramos, letters by VCs Joe Sabino. So we've had a couple of one shots in between the Alpha and Omega issues of Annihilation Scourge, each focusing on different characters coming to the big like finale. So we know, and spoiler alert, if you are not up on this, you should be. Sentry is the big bad at the heart of this. He has gone from Donny Cates, brought him back in Doctor Strange. You know, we saw him bounce around a little bit. And then in the pages of Black Panther and Agents of Wakanda, he sort of rocketed off into space. And we've picked up with him having gone to the Cancerverse of all terrible places. If you are unfamiliar with that, it is from the Thanos Imperative story, a great big cosmic horror epic, and it's taking that cosmic horror into the negative zone, now trying to get into the Marvel Universe. So it's all this kind of cool, messed up, weird stuff mishmashing together. We've got Beta Ray Bill side by side with the best doggy in the world, Lockjaw, wonderful team up. Their best friendship is something I, I really love to see, and the two of them they actually just like spend a bunch of pages broing down, having fun, partying, fighting bad guys. Ultimately, we get to see Sentry versus Beta Ray Bill, this, you know, version of Thor, if you are unfamiliar with him. And uh, it is dope and it is terrifying. And Bill ain't going to win this, but it's really cool to see how it shakes out. All this coming together in the big Omega issue really soon. When we talk about the Cancerverse, every single time I think about Ben Morse. Mm -hmm. talk, former This Week in Marvel that's right, co host. My former boss, great guy. And him talking about Rich Rider and Star Lord and how they're the Butch and Sundance of the Marvel Universe. Yeah. I literally think about that every single time I either hear Cancerverse or Rich Rider or Star Lord. So thanks, Ben. Yeah. I mean, it the, the two of them stayed in the Kansaverse to battle Thanos and stop Thanos from coming back to the Marvel Universe for, I think it. For in with the time difference, like yeah. the way time flows, yeah. they were there for a long period of time. Yeah, pretty awesome. Okay, our next book is my first pick of the week. It is Annihilation Scourge, Silver Surfer, number one. It's another one of these one shots that Ryan's talking about. It's written by Dan Abnett with art by Paul Davidson, colors by Matt Mila, and letters by VCs Clayton Cowles. It's been similar to a few characters that are at the center of things this week. The Surfer is had a huge year one and then two has kind of reminded me that he's got to be one of my favorite characters around and the way that Matt Mila colors the surfer in this issue alongside the art by Paul Davidson is absolutely spectacular it's got such a Kirby vibe to it the spaceship designs in particular the Kirby crackle the colors it is so so cool another thing that popped up this week was a bunch of flashback art in a bunch of different issues and being able to dive into the differences and that old school vibe that we all love popped up in a, in a bunch of different books this week, which is really cool. And this team knocked it out of the park. 
But to see the journey that the surfer is going on in this issue as he hangs tan across the Annihilation Scourge kind of storyline as a whole is so cool. And I think it highlights such a fascinating element of this character going back to Fantastic 448 where he is introduced to the world as a bad guy. He has so much depth to him. You know, I think of Dan Slott and the All Reds Silver Surfer, where, you know, that highlighted uh, a completely different side of him. And then, and then we have a story like this where he's capable of so much. And seeing where he goes in this issue is so cool, so fascinating, all brought to you by Dan Abnett, who is kind of a modern Marvel cosmic legend, done so much incredible work from the Guardians of the Galaxy to beyond. So to get that all packed into one issue is super, super cool. Yeah. Yeah. I like that you talk about the coloring. There's something that I remember from one of the creative retreats a while ago where Donnie Cates was explaining his Silver Surfer Black story and the way that Donnie envisioned it. Because you got to remember, Donnie Cates is, you know, one of our top writers, but he's also a very talented artist. He went to art school. He has Mm. that mind and mentality. He envisioned Silver Surfer coming out of Silver Surfer Black as he has not being necessarily just silver, but almost like oil. So he is this liquidy coloring that looks like a cascading rainbow, right. constantly shifting, constantly moving around him, this this shimmering, weird look. So if you look at oil, like on a, in a puddle on the ground, mm-hmm. like something in it, it, uh, it has this rainbow going through it that will constantly move. And that's the way Silver Surfer is colored now. And I think that's such a difficult thing to do. And yeah. it's done so well by Matt and, and others. It's gorgeous. Yeah, gorgeous completely stuff. Agree. Silver Surfer Black, we'll see you in collections talk. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. Also this week, Black Panther and the Agents of Wakanda, number four, written by Jim Zub, pencils by Lon Medina, inks by Craig Young, colors by Marcio Menes and Eric Arseniego, with letters in production by VCs Joe Sabino. Black Panther and Agents of Wakanda is about Panther's crew of people he puts together. He's like, I need certain people to get certain things done. They have specific skill sets, they have abilities, they have knowledge. And in this issue, they are trying to figure out what is up with the moon, because the moon is alive and there's something inside of it. So it's this big, fun adventure, kind of weird kind of disturbing also brings in a bunch of changes for john jameson aka the man wolf aka the star god and seeing what happens with him it's really uh jim's up we'll see more of you later too next up i have captain america number 17 it's by Tanhasi coates and jason masters with colors by matt mila hey it's you again with letters by vcs Corey pettit one of my favorite captain america runs recently is mark wade and chris samney's run where they, i think they did maybe 12 issues 10 12 issues something like that a couple of story arcs including captain america 700 which was really awesome but that story arc was right off the back of secret empire and was a really simple story of cap getting on his hog and riding across America and just kind of having these really domestic, rural at times, suburban at times, just interactions with normal everyday folk uh, along the way, of course, encountering a bunch of bad guys. But that's what this issue actually reminded me of because it, it takes place in like this suburban home alongside the Daughters of Liberty. And a lot of it is just really fascinating conversation between a bunch of these characters. And then, of course, you have the action throwdown stuff. Uh, it's all really awesome as per usual. On to Captain Marvel number 13. This is part two of The Last Avenger, written by Kelly Thompson with art by Lee Garbett, colors by Tom Rabon Valane, and letters by VCs Clayton Cowles. There's been a lot of people making a lot of noise about Captain Marvel number 12, the previous issue, both good and bad. They're like, what is Carol doing? Why are you ruining Carol? <laughs> Nobody ruining Carol. Kelly Thompson is telling a fantastic story alongside Lee and the team. You know, 
There was something that Dan Slott recently said. How someone was like, I know exactly "Why do you? What you're talking about? Why do you hate Spider-Man? Why do you hate this character? Why do you hate these characters? Because they put them in danger and despair and and do awful things to them. It is they don't hate them at all. They love them so much. We want to see our heroes go through adversity, climb up, and and succeed in ways that that's what makes a great story. You don't want to just like, oh look. Captain Marvel punched a, a planet and then she sat and drank yeah. a latte for just home you know, runs, not just always doing everything right, right, just killing it the whole time. Thumbs up, and then at the end, it's just more thumbs up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no. Carol is who she is because she's dealt with so much friggin' drama, ad- adversity, problems. You know, like she is so strong for a reason. So you have to deal with that. And this is a great story because in the first part of this, she had to kill an Avenger and she did. That's the purpose of this story. It involves one of the characters, the big bad from the death of the inhuman storyline. So she's doing something that she doesn't want to do, but there's reasons. And this issue provides a bunch of answers, puts us in a direction where Hopefully, everybody who's reading this sees like, oh, I see what's going on here. But trust in our creators. Trust in, in like the storyline and the direction. <laughs> We're not going to destroy Captain Marvel, but we got to put her through some really nasty stuff. And this one is nasty. It's gorgeous. It's got big fights. It's space. It's This one, I will tell you, is Carol versus Tony. Mm. Mm. This series just keeps leveling up. It's really crazy. And not just with the storyline. It feels like this entire team is just like, all right. We're not holding anything back. We're going for it. It's not just in terms of the narrative, but also in terms of the costumes. Man, there are some really good designs in that book from this like dark Captain Marvel to Star and so much in there. It's so, so much to love. Next up, we have Doom 2099, number one. This is written by Chip Zdarsky with art by Marco Castiello, colors by Chris Sotomayor, and letters by VCs Clayton Cowles. Chip, of course, wrote Marvel 2-in-1, which kind of straddled the line of the return of the Fantastic Four. It started off as a Thing and Johnny book, but then it eventually became Invisible Woman and Thing and Reed and, and Johnny and, and a mixture once the team returned. You know what's really interesting? Yeah. I hate to interrupt you, but yes. the, the way we talk about these characters Characters interchanging their their like first names with their hero names. Yes, and just you know, I said Thing and Johnny, didn't I? You said Thing and Johnny. You said Invisible Woman and Reed. Like it makes sense. It's yeah. just so weird because the way we feel like we know them, but at the same time, you can talk about them You're in so all right. different ways. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. In that Marvel Two and One, Chip wrote a great Doctor Doom. He just has this delicious quality to him. This is like incredibly smart, incredibly in control, but also just delightfully dark at so many times. This issue is so cool because it's a 2099 book, yes, but if you were to open the first five, eight pages or something like that, it looks more like we're in the wastelands than in 2099, which is so cool. It's such a different take in a bunch of different ways because you imagine this kind of techno-digital future kind of vibe, and this one is very gritty, dusty, dirty in a bunch of different ways. It's really cool. Then their narrative kind of turns in on itself in a really unique way, a way that was super inventive, super tightly packaged, and uh, we come out the other end with like just a great one-shot Doom 2099 story. Really, really loved it, really into it. We're going to get more 2099 
in a few minutes, but this is one of my favorites so far. Shout out to Chip Zdarsky, who's nursing some sickness after his trip to Japan. Famously. Yeah. He's drinking apple-flavored Coca-Cola, trying to make himself, and it's not going to work. Nope. All right, up next is Fallen Angels number three, written by Brian Hill, with art by Simone Kudransky, with colors by Frank Darmada, and letters by VCs Joe Sabino, designed by Tom Muller and Jonathan Hickman. This is the third issue in the series, and it follows Psylocke, a.k.a. Quanon, who is trying to do some really weird stuff. She's following a child. She's following this weird, messed-up death god, and she is taking along with her X-23 and Cable, trying to give them some guidance and, and focus their rage and their energies. We get to see X-23 unleashed on a big old bot, which has some secrets inside. And poor, poor Cable, he gets a little bit captured this issue. Next up, we have Fantastic Four, number 17. It's written by the aforementioned, the great Dan Slott, with art by Luciano Vecchio, Carlos Magno, Bob Quinn, and Sean Isaacs. Colors by Eric Garciniega and letters by VCs Travis Lanham. We are on the planet of Spire, continuing the journey to the Fantastic Four's original destination in their origin story, where they meant to go on that cosmic adventure but never ended up, of course, going to. They're finally here, and they're finding out a lot about this planet, a lot about the society there, and maybe even a bunch about themselves. By that, I mean that one, Johnny Storm, famous Lothario. There's a word I would like to know Ooh, the last I time that. I used it. There's a famous wrestling trainer and wrestler named Jose Lothario. Whoa, that's cool. Yep. I love that. He has found out that apparently... Um, by some mystical greater truth, his soulmate lives on this planet. That's someone called Sky. That's really cool. Ben is throwing down. Reed and Sue are on a different part of the planet, finding out a bunch. I'm really into these Dan Slott stories where he gets the chance to create societies, create worlds, because, of course, we know that he can write the likes of Spider-Man in New York City with the best of them. And then when we get to see him do something like this, it's just a delight. He is such a master of this kind of stuff where it's just like this person is doing backflips and making it look like nothing because it's filling in a really crucial part of Fantastic Four history, but doing it really inventive new different way heck yeah all right up next is friendly neighborhood spider-man issue number 14 unfortunately the last issue of this amazing run which is written by tom taylor it has two artists on it there's a flashback sequence with art and coloring by marguerite savage with the present day art by ken lashley and colors by rochelle rosenberg with vcs travis lanham throughout the flashback stuff man Oh, so good. It's got a young Aunt May and Uncle Ben and a Peter Parker who he's dealing with some stuff. It's a very important sequence. It feels so crucial to the Peter Parker May dynamic. And it's wonderfully told. It's sort of used as a bookend in the book. Very sweet, wonderful piece. But it tells this interesting story, finding that thread of the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man, the Spidey that we see in this book, uh, as someone who He's there for the people around him, and we get to see the roles reversed and people supporting Peter in a time when he really, really needs it. On top of that, there's another story going on in this issue with a young kid and Peter being just like the best. Yeah. Spider-Man is the best. Yeah. I, I talked about the Doom 2099 book being just a really tight narrative, really concise storytelling. And that's what I think of when I think of Tom Taylor in general. He's so good at being able to, within a couple pages, tell a really heartfelt story. And that's definitely a great example of it. Next up, we have Ghost Rider, number three, or as I like to call it, Ghost Riders. Why wasn't this book called Ghost Riders? 
because it's about it's about Johnny and Danny. How relevant is the title? Because the question I always want to ask is like, who is the true ghostwriter? Anyway, it's all written by Ed Brisson with art by Juan Fergari, colors by Jason Keith, and letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. I think my favorite piece of this story has got to be all the action going on with Danny Ketch because the loads are extremely low. But those moments of release, those moments of freedom, those moments where he connects with either what he wants to do or what the universe is asking him to do and the direction that he was kind of made to go in. Those rare moments where he embraces the spirit of vengeance, at least in this part of his life, is so cool. It's so freeing. And I love them so much. Juan Fergari and Jason Keith especially, shout out because there is some really haunting terrifying beautiful artistry going on in here i'm looking at a page where we get this like amazing like melting skeleton set against this beautiful sunset it's that perfect line between horror and superhero stuff and i think ed walks that tightrope beautifully yeah yeah jumping on what you were saying at the beginning of who is the real ghostwriter producer jorge said why don't we toss out a uh, little hashtag who is the real ghostwriter you guys can tweet at agent m or at tucker marcus let us know who is the real ghostwriter and if your answer is not knuckles o'shaughnessy then you are wrong whoa early 20th century sidekick to a ghostwriter who his name is Knuckles O'Shaughnessy. Everyone else can yeah. GT out of here. <laughs> yeah, I am not familiar, but on the name alone, I'm with you. My vote goes there too. Yeah. yeah. All right. Up next is Immortal Hulk number 28. This is written by Al Ewing with art by Tom Riley and Mateus Bergara with colors by Chris O'Halloran and letters by VCs Corey Pettit. Oh, man. This one is cool. This one really focuses on Roxxon, the evil corporation that has been at the heart of so much nasty stuff across the Marvel Universe, whether it's causing the fates of Cloak and Dagger or being a major part of the War of the Realms or just infiltrating every part of society as certain multinational corporations do. Hulk is working through trying to tear them down. And so we see them starting to fight back and think of new ways to do that. It's really cool because this issue brings in a Hulk that is not Gamma at all. Mm. It's really cool. Gorgeous design. We've seen them on the covers. Plus, man, the freaking design for Dario Agar, the Minotaur yeah. head of Roxxon, is just so cool. He looks so disgusting, like stomach churning in the best way. Like, I don't want to look at him, but I want to look at him. <laughs> yeah. It's really neat. I mentioned Jim Zub a little bit earlier, and he is the writer of Marvel's Avengers Iron Man number one, with art brought to you by Paco Diaz, colors by Rochelle Rosenberg and Andy Troy, and letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. This is a prequel to the Marvel's Avengers video game out next year. Can't wait for that. But something that I'm always so excited about with these kind of prequel comics is seeing like what version of the Marvel Universe we're going to get in the game because there are so many different iterations of those characters. There's so many different sides and flavors to them that are incredibly subtle and sourced from 80 years of Marvel history. So with all of that as the seeds for the story that we're going to eventually get in the game, it's so cool to see exactly which characters we're going to have cherry-picked from Marvel history and what new things are brought to the table as well. It's it's such a cool, glorious 
various mixture of things. And what I love about Jim Zub up there with many things is his versatility. You know, we talked about him as writer of Black Panther and Age of Wakanda. He's writer of this video game prequel story. He is a great writer of youthful stories, as we saw in Champions. He has written Conan the Barbarian. He does so much, and I think he's just like that person who could step in and do an amazing job at any task you give him. And uh, yeah, it's something I really admire about about any writer. And so to see Jim come in and be given the responsibility of telling these stories that take place before Marvel's Avengers game is so cool. Yeah. And yeah, this is a really interesting one. All right. Up next is Miles Morales, Spider-Man, issue number 13, written by Saladin Ahmed, with art by Javier Garon, Kevin Labranda, and Alitha E. Martinez across different parts of the issue, along with colors by David Curiel and Protobunker and letters by VCs Corey Pettit. Want to give a special super shout out to cover artists for the main cover, Javier Garon and David Curiel, because they do one of my favorite things, break through and change up the actual logo. You've got the rhino busting through a wall with the logo being shattered around him. It's so cool. So it's just such a neat trick. And we don't do it a lot, which makes it even more powerful. Yeah. Can can you think of like your favorite individual issue ever that did that? Could, do you um, have any in mind? There's a Stranko Hulk, I believe, Ooh. that does it. Nice. There is Beta Ray Bill coming right. through and smashing Thor. Yeah. Those are classics. Yeah. Gorgeous. Uh, yeah. If you guys have your favorites, you can also tweet those to us. We can share those out. Those are really good. Yeah. But this issue is great because it has a, a wonderful dynamic between Miles Morales and his uncle, Aaron, who is the Prowler. And the two of them, they're dealing with the fact that Aaron is the Prowler and Miles is like, no, you got to not prowl. Stop <laughs> being bad. I love you so much. And this wonderful nephew uncle dynamic really hits me home because I'm very close to one of my uncles and I see this. It, it, it's really wonderful. Also, I love that this issue starts Basically where I live. It is 300 feet from my house. They're right near Fort Tryon Park and the cloisters. And I live like within spitting distance. And I can <laughs> see those things walking out of my apartment. So it's really fun. And then they're like, we got to get to Brooklyn. And I'm like, I hate going to Brooklyn now. <laughs> it's so fun. Yeah. It's terrible. They get there and it's fun. Um, there's some fun battles along the way. It is gorgeous. And it's fun. It is exactly what you want out of a Miles Morales comic. And by the end of the issue, there's a brand new, very big, very little cast member. Ooh. Next up, we have Morbius number two. This is written by Vita Ayala with pencils by Marcelo Ferreira, inks by Roberto Poggi and Scott Hanna, colors by Dono Sanchez Almara, and letters by VCs Clayton Cowles. I want to shout out Ryan Brown on these horrifically awesome covers as well. Just super photorealistic, really, really cool, and I think sets the tone for these books really beautifully. The line for Michael Morbius that is so interesting, and it's brought forth by the Comics Code Authority, who had a bunch of issues with horror stories and, and gore, specifically back in the 1970s. As a result, this vampire character was named specifically the living vampire. This guy's not dead. He's not the undead. This is not the occult. It's a nice circumnavigation. It's a science vampire. Yeah. You know, science is okay. Yeah. That, that, that is truly cool. how it was... How it was done. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's pretty awesome. So with that as its very unique origin, with that being built into the very name of this book and this character, it seems like Vita took this as a really interesting jumping off point to try and find the line between the man and the monster. 
it's something that is a critical dynamic in the history of the Marvel Universe, this man, this monster. But at the end of issue one, we see Morbius descending into this feral, horrific animal monster side of himself as he you know, goes on his seemingly never-ending search for uh, self-cure. And it's about that struggle. It's a very visceral comic, not for the faint of heart, in the best way. I love it. And it, for me, is becoming more and more indicative of the kind of storytelling that Vita loves because it has that heart at the center of it, but it's also completely no-holds-barred, crazy action. We also get a few new characters to this story that are coming into play that add something completely different. It's all about finding, like, not just what's going on in the interior of Michael Morbius, but where are allegiances, who's there to save the day, who's there to try and kill the title hero, villain, who knows what. Uh, It's like a book all about that gray area, and that's exactly what I love. Yeah. Well, I want to give a quick shout out to Marcelo for uh, there's this one panel in particular where Morbius is like hunched over in mm. pain and it's a beautiful, well-structured panel. And the way his cape mm. flows out, it's straight off 1992 Todd McFarlane spawn action. And it's so dope. It looks really great. I love the book. The art is bonkers. On yeah. It. All right. Another book I love in my first pick of the week is New Mutants issue number three, written by Ed Brisson with art by Flaviano, colors by Carlos Lopez, letters by VCs Travis Lanham, designed by Jonathan Hickman and Tom Muller. And so Hickman and Brisson are working together on New Mutants, and this is a full-on Ed Brisson issue where it doesn't even touch on the team that is in outer space, who we've seen across the first two issues. This focuses on a bunch of other young mutants, other new mutants, which I think is a really cool aspect of this book. It is not just, you know, the 1980s New Mutants team. We're seeing characters from Grant Morrison, Frank Quietly's run on New X-Men. We're seeing characters from most recent stuff of young teams. We're seeing stuff from Wolverine and the X-Men, Jean Grey School period. We're seeing, you know, all these different aspects, Generation X. And it's, it's neat to see them sort of tied together because they are these different generations of young potential X-Men, but also because they have such special places. Everybody has their like niche favorite characters that they grew up with as the POV young X-Men that they were reading when they were younger. A lot of people, it's Kitty Pryde. A lot of people, it's Generation X. Some people, it's Jubilee. You know, you have all these different aspects and it's fun watching them pick these different characters, put them together. There's a sequence in here with Armor, who is a character we saw in Joss Whedon and John Cassidy's Astonishing X-Men. She is interacting with Boom Boom. Boom Boom is a character who first appeared in the 1980s, was a pivotal part of uh, the later New Mutants and an X-War. So it's really fun seeing all these different characters come together. But we have a bunch of these characters, including, of course, Glob Herman, going to try to find some other younger mutants to bring them and see if they, they want to come to Krakoa. And so what we learn is there's a reason why two important characters from Grant Morrison's run, Angel and Beak, have not come to Krakoa. And it's this warm, sweet story about family and about like extending the benefits of Krakoa to people and trying to find the friendships that you may have lost. And then, of course, humans being humans, mm. and they are the worst. Next up, we have Punisher, Soviet number two. It's written by Garth Ennis with pencils by Jason Burroughs, inks by Guillermo Ortego, colors by Nolan Woodard, and letters by Rob Steen. Look, Garth Ennis writing Punisher, say no more. This is a max book, which means it is 
not for kids. Means it won't be on Marvel Unlimited yes. in, in six months. So you're going to have to go out and buy, 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 buy it. Uh, and you'll want to. It, it's relentless in the best way. And, you know, I was thinking of Jason Burroughs because he worked with Max Bemis on... I think the most recent run of Moon Knight, which I was a really big fan of. That was another book that was like, since I've been reading weekly comics, every book, every week, probably the the high watermark for like absolutely horrific, almost hard to look at, but wonderful storytelling out of the sick and twisted and wonderful minds of Max and Jason. So, of course, I can imagine an editor taking a look at that, in this case, Nick Lowe, master editor, and being like, yeah, that guy needs to be on a Punisher book. And, man, he doesn't hold back. This one, as, you know, previously shown in Punisher books, Punisher can be a war book. Punisher can be a noir crime book. This one kind of combines two of those things in a really interesting way. Again, talking about flashback art, which I did a little bit earlier, we see that. We go back and, and get a glimpse at the war history to some of these characters and how that's influenced them to this day. Obviously, that's a huge part of Frank Castle's story, but seeing how that reverberates and how that impacts those around him as well is really, really interesting. So to mix those different genre influences, all told by Garth Ennis, you just can't do any better than that. So freaking good. Yeah. All right. Up next is Savage Sword of Conan issue number 12. This is the final issue of this run of the book. It is written by Frank Thierry with pencils by Andrea DeVito, inks by Scott Hanna, colors by Hava Tartaglia, letters by VCs Travis Lanham. Cool to see Andrea DeVito doing this book. We've been talking about some Annihilation stuff earlier in the episode. Andrea did the first Annihilation series. There's something about his figures. There's a, a warm, like, bodily quality about it. I, I don't, I'm not really sure what it is. There's something the way he draws people that I just absolutely love. And also monsters, because we get to see monsters in this. We get to see Conan making some bad choices for good reasons and ending up having to throw something into a volcano. <laughs> Uh, next up, we have Spider-Man 2099, number one. It's written by Nick Spencer with art by Zay Carlos, colors by Brian Rebrandt with Andrew Crossley, and letters by VCs Corey Pettit. Nick Spencer, of course, is telling a very precise story across Amazing Spider-Man and now bringing 2099 into the fold, being the driving force behind all of these 2099 books. And he's writing this one himself, of course, so to see how Miguel O'Hara popped up in Amazing Spider-Man and then has led us in to the 2099 landscape is so cool. Of course, when you're going to dive into this one, it's going to be a piece of that puzzle. It's so cool. For, for a writer like Nick Spencer, who's so great at writing Spider-Man, I love Amazing Spider-Man, that main series, to see his take on what elements of that character are perennial across Peter Parker or Miguel O'Hara across 2099 or the 616 and to see that all woven into the story that he's telling is so cool and if you're into 2099 you'll be into this yeah yeah we got another spider book here it is spider-verse issue number three written by jed mckay with art by dk juan colors by ian herring this series is following miles morales as he's going around to different universes trying to figure out how to fully fix the web of life and destiny and all this other cool stuff but it's really just a, an excuse to have him have cool adventures and see different spider heroes and here he's hanging out with spider sp dash dash dr i've Look at it. My brain says doctor. I think it's 
Doctor. Okay, we'll go with sp- Dr. Doctor. Big Doctor influences this week. Yeah, always, always, always love the good Doctor. <laughs> so in this issue, we get to see Spidey hang out with Penny. If you know the movie Into the Spider Verse, mm-hmm. you have an idea of who that character is. But this, the the comic version that came first, is slightly different. I love this design. It's this cool, weird mech, and we get to see a twisted version of a couple of different. Not even just Spidey villains, just Marvel villains yeah. here in this story. My second pick of the week is Star Wars Doctor Aphra number 40. Boom. You I said wanna, that so fast. Yeah, I like it. I want to get that out of the way just so that I can now just talk about Star Wars with you because we have two Star Wars books next. As of this recording last night, I saw my favorite actor of many years, Richard E. Grant, who in a twist of fate is going to be in my favorite thing, Star Wars. I believe it was like August 2018 when it was announced that he was going to be in episode nine. Two of my favorite things coming together. He posted a video online where he talked about having just seen Rise of Skywalker with the cast for the first time. I saw John Boyega posted that he saw for the first time. Uh, And Richard Grant is like on the verge of tears in this video. And it just made me so excited. But speaking of endings and speaking of the end of the Skywalker saga on that side of things, we have the end of this run on Dr. Aphra. And this issue, number 40, is written by Simon Spurrier with art by Casper Wingard, colors by Lilo Ridge, and letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. What a run it's been. Simon Spurrier leading the way and really making by sheer force of will and skill and so many other indefinable things, making Dr. Aphra one of the great Star Wars characters of the modern age. There is a crazy amount of adventure to this series, which we've talked about many times before. Getting that in one issue or one story is hard enough, but maintaining that spirit across 40 issues is a ridiculous feat. And, you know, I think this run sets such a high watermark for this character and for the future of the character, uh, which I couldn't be more excited about. As Darth Vader has been such a huge element of Aphra's story, of course he's involved here. There is such a cool Act 3 of Empire Strikes Back tone, and that's like such a reference for me. It's 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 so Star Wars for me, and I know I've talked about it on this show before, of just the sense that, like, it's opera. It's fun at the same time, but it feels like everything is crumbling, but you have hope. And seeing Aphra thrown into that gauntlet, see her come out the other side, and see her heading now into Star Wars Empire Ascendant, which will bring together Aphra with the flagship series characters of Star Wars before we go into the aftermath of the Empire Strikes Back in the new year with Star Wars number one, Darth Vader number one, Dr. Aphra number one, as written by Alyssa Wong, which I'm super excited about. Alyssa Wong does a little uh, Q&A in the back matter of this book, which is super cool. All of it leaves me thinking about a conversation that you and I had with Lucasfilm Story Group, Matt Martin, during our trip to San Francisco and Lucasfilm earlier this year. During that conversation, we talked about what makes a Star Wars story a Star Wars story. What are the crucial parts? That was a conversation that I obviously loved having, and there are so many different elements of it, one of which I remember Matt saying was, to understand Star Wars, you need to understand what influenced Star Wars. You don't just need to know Star Wars and you know Star Wars characters to a T. It's not really about that. It's about knowing... The films yeah, and the Yojimbo the or whatever. You know, like, it's about 
those heavy influences on George Lucas in the 1970s, it's not just about that. It's also just purely a sense of hope. That's really it. And leaving this issue and this entire run with Dr. Afra, a character who has been through so much from, you know, just like pure action to like romance to every single facet of this character's life, to leave it with this sense of hope and going to the next era of Star Wars, the next era of Dr. Afra, it's the perfect ending. Yeah. yeah. If you want to hear that conversation with Matt Martin, that is coming up on an episode of This Week in Marvel. We actually have a bunch of really cool Star Wars stuff happening on This Week in Marvel. Gary Whitta, writer of Rogue One. We have uh, Will Sliney, who is artist on numerous Star Wars titles. Matt Rosenberg, who wrote the prequel to Fallen Order video game and, and so much more. And then Women of Marvel has an episode for Star Wars. So it's really cool. If you are ready for your Star Wars fix, we got you covered in the next week and change. I'll be listening. Yeah. And, you know, when you talk about hope, that also ties into our other Star Wars book this week, Star Wars Target Vader, issue number six, which is written by Robbie Thompson, art by Stefano Landini, Roberto Salvo, George Duarte, with colors by Niraj Menon and Rochelle Rosenberg, and letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. This one does give a great sense of hope and I that like clicked with me as you said it and mm-hmm. that ties this book again all together. It's this character, you know, that we've been following, Valance, who was a character from the 1970s Marvel series who we brought back and made canon and made part of the Star Wars universe who has gone through so much horror, you know, it's basically turned into a cyborg, has lost people, lost so much, and trying to find that sense of hope, tying it all together by the end of this series, it was great. There's a warmth to it that I wasn't expecting to get out of this issue. Totally. Next book we have is Strike Force number four. It's written by Teeny Howard with art by Herman Peralta, Max Fiumara, America Cresta, Stacy Lee, colors by Guru EFX, Dan Brown, and letters and design by VCs Joe Sabino. This issue has really cool Haunted Mansion vibes to it, which I loved. Uh, and it feels in a similar way to how the Morbius story felt very much like it was this is the kind of story you can just tell that teeny loves to write because it has that dark uh kind of maybe horror influence underbelly to it but it's also got this crackling hilarious super fun dialogue built all the way through we get again one of those threads that i was talking about was weaving through this week's books is some cool flashback art where we see you know the winter soldier who is uh, a part of this group we see Uh, his early days of World War II alongside Cap. Then we have Hellstrom and his early days in New York City. Jumping back and forth between that and between this haunted mansion that we are kind of residing in, this cul-de-sac that the team has found themselves in in Indonesia, along with the, like, ghostly, ghouly, horrific side of things, it's so much built into one. Really, the way I would describe it to anyone who would ask me about this series is... It's a bunch of characters who absolutely have no business being on the same team on the same team. And that's why it's so good. Yeah. All right. Also so good this week is Symbiote Spider-Man Alien Reality Number 1, written by Peter David, art by Greg Land, inks by Jay Lyston, and colors by Frank D'Armada, letters by VCs Joe Sabino. This one is cool. It is a follow-up to the previous Symbiote Spider-Man story that we got, setting, basically going back in time to when Peter Parker was wearing the original Symbiote before Venom fully came out. You know, like this is a 1980s era story, and it's so fun to tie back into that era. Uh, I want to also give a 
major shout out because there's uh, a variant cover program for this issue called the Symbiote Swap Program and a bunch of different variants by our young guns and, and such. There's one, there's a great one by Aaron Cooter who riffs on one of my favorite Eric Larson covers mm. from the Spider-Man series following up on Todd McFarlane when it was the Revenge of the Sinister Six storyline and Spider-Man got beaten so badly he had to wear a like cyborg suit on him and he had this gnarly arm and this like goggles and it's him and Deathlock side by side. They actually adapted that costume into Marvel Spider-Man for PlayStation 4. This cover and this program removes Spidey's classic costume or whatever he was wearing on the original cover and swaps it with the symbiote so you get a very different vibe and it's really cool there's that cover and then one of my favorite all-time spider-man issues spider-man number 17 it's an issue in which spider-man dies mm. uh we actually talked about it on this week in marvel recently because it was one of my hidden gem picks of the 1990s written by anna senti and art by rick leonardi it has thanos on the cover holding spider-man's dead body and it's so cool <laughs> this one like i didn't realize other people liked that issue and knew it so well. I read it so many times as a child, uh, and so it makes me really happy. It's it's really funny that that Aaron Cooter uh, variant, especially just the layout, is so '90s. I looked at that yeah. as you're flipping through, and I'm like, that is the 1990s comic books right there, oh, yeah. but in the coolest way. And that's yeah. so funny because it's drawn like very modern, very you know, like Aaron Cooter, brilliant. But just like how the characters are standing and the way they're framed on the page just screams 90s to me. I, I feel like I'd be able to guess yeah. uh, that that's when that came from. That's really fun. I love that. All right. So this issue has Peter Parker in the symbiote suit and he's going through, he's, you know, dealing with Craven the Hunter. There's a whole storyline going on with Doctor Strange and Black Widow. And then it takes this hard left turn and I was not expecting at all where the story goes and it's super fun. It is Peter David's whip snap dialogue throughout. It's really funny. It's quirky. You've got Hobgoblin in here. You've got Spider-Man in a way that is very different and twisted around from the classic story that we think. And it's just oodles of fun. Yeah. Oodles of fun. Super into it. Next up, we have Valkyrie Jane Foster, number six. It's written by Al Ewing and Jason Aaron with art by Perry Perez, colors by Jesus Abertov and letters in production by VCs Joe Sabino. Every single time that I say that, I am kind of dumbfounded that we are getting a series written by Al Ewing and Jason Aaron. That's ridiculous, like, all-star, greatest two writers teaming up for a story. It's really, really insane for me to think about those two guys working together because they're such freaks in their own right that putting their talents together should be illegal. This issue is really cool, and I love the angle that this takes as we're starting the second arc of this series here because Jane has obviously been super busy dealing with Bullseye, Heimdall. There's so many different characters. Grim I'm, Reaper. Grim Reaper, yeah. Jane settling into her role as the Valkyrie and kind of shepherding the dead to the next world, bringing it back down to Earth here in issue six, it makes perfect sense because she's received a kind of demotion at the hospital and she's working in the morgue because she's been so busy doing other things that she hasn't been around as much as she necessarily maybe should have been. But I, it works so perfectly and it's a beautiful puzzle piece because you know, that is like, okay, that makes perfect sense from the hospital point of view. But then it's also like, yeah, where better to send this character whose job it is to shepherd the dead than to the morgue? There, she encounters a bunch of stuff starting in this issue, which I'm really, really into. And it all culminates with the coalescence of a doctor squad. Doctor squad. Doctor squad. Bunch of doctors 
in a squad, um, you know, banging your knee, testing your reflexes, and uh, I don't know, what's your favorite doctor thing? Uh, not being anywhere near me. <laughs> yeah. I don't like going to them doctors. <laughs> Do want to give a shout out to Karis Pollard, uh, one of our listeners who chimed in incorrectly saying that Doctor Strange <laughs> is better than Doctor Doom. Karis, you are always forever wrong in this respect. <laughs> Strange can go to hell, which he has, <laughs> he has. with Doctor Doom because Doctor Doom goes to hell <laughs> for his mom. Makes him Whoa. better than everybody wow. else. Anyway, let's move on to my second... Pick of the week, which is X-Force number three, going full Dawn of X today. This issue of X-Force is written by Benjamin Percy with art by Joshua Kassara. Letters by VC Joe Sabino. Colors by Guru EFX and designed by Tom Muller and Jonathan Hickman. Man, oh man. I, you know, I, I've been talking about Marauders and how much I love that book, and I do. And then X-Force is just creeping up and creeping up and creeping up as being like the other yeah. shining, standout, messed up, awesome book. This is... Not as funny as Marauders, but it's so much like darker and weirder and, and just what what would our friend Benjamin Percy say? It is buggage poison. It is poison in all the best ways. You've got Wolverine <laughs> and Quentin Quire going to try to save Domino and her skin has been flayed off. She has been tortured. There's like these monstrosities without skin, without any minds that are going after them. There's this beautiful giant splash page in this issue of a skinless beast man lunging after the three X-Men and it is so cool. It reminds me in some ways of Jerome Pena and Dean White on Uncanny X-Force in that like the color palette the texture of the art everything just screams. Joshua Kassar leveling up beyond compare in this series. Like this is putting him in a new stratosphere of amazing artists. And you go from that page to a couple pages later of this almost birth, rebirth sequence with a character coming out of the Krakoan embryonic pods. And it's it's so cool. The colors pop off the page, the blues, the reds, the purples, the oranges. And it like they fit this different scenes. You know, the, the scene with Wolverine and Quentin and Domino is darker, but it has this energy hue, this purple neon messed up like vibe to it. You've got all these different stories going on in here, but ultimately it goes back to something that Benjamin Percy talked about at New York Comic Con about this title. Not just that it was poison, but that this book, X-Force, is about a sort of FBI of Krakoa, where one side is the hand, one side is the brain, and now we're starting to see how those pieces will work, will function, and, and what they're going to do. And it's, man, it's just neat as heck. I love this book. I think if you have not been checking it out, now is the time to get on board. You're three issues in. You're really seeing how it affects the entirety of, of everything X-Men. Seriously, it's so, so good. Okay, we're wrapping up this week with Deondu number three. It's written by Zach Thompson and Lonnie Nadler with art by John McRae, colors by Mike Spicer, and letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. This book is all about the dynamic between OG Yandu Udanta from the original Guardians of the Galaxy, back with the giant, awesome alien mohawk, and the more modern version of Yandu, one that people in the current day will be more familiar with. And we just get to see them on this long trek, this long journey as they go through and try and solve this kind of mystical monster problem that they found themselves up against. 
I can just imagine Zach and Lonnie coming to the board and saying, it's all about this dynamic. The entire book rests on it. And I think in terms of the dialogue, in terms of all the action that's going down between these characters, it completely hits home. I'm a big fan. I obviously, I love Yandu as a character. I love both iterations of this character. So to see them interacting is a really, really unique take on a book like this. And I'm so into it. Yeah. If you like a, like an odd couple dynamic, yeah. that's this is a, a great title for that. Yeah, totally. Okay. That's what we have for individual issues on sale this week. But for collections on sale, hold on to your butts, folks, because we have two of the best things in Marvel Comics is of it, the I year. I think it's a single collection, putting them all together in I'm one saying, volume. Well, yes, I'm saying two yeah. of the best collections at large are on offer in one week. Mm. It's oh, insane. Yeah. Perfect in time for the holidays. Go out, spend your money. You're going to want to, starting with House of X, Powers of Ten. It's collected right there. We also have Marvel Monograph, The Art of Ed McGinnis, Deadpool, and The X-Men. So good. I oh, love yeah. these monograph books. These are just really cool art books with behind-the-scenes stuff. They're mm. a little bit larger in format. They are terrific. And then we have Silver Surfer Black. Oh, my what? God. Are you kidding me? Star Wars Dr. Aphra Volume 6, Unspeakable Rebel Super Weapon, Tigra, The Complete Collection, X-Force Epic Collection, Executioner Song. The greatest X-Men story of all time. You can go to hell, House of X and Powers of... No, you can't. I love that story too, but Executioner Song is my jam. I have two copies, including this brand new volume, on my shelf because I couldn't bring myself to put one in storage because they're that good. I have two of them. Wow. I'm breathing into a brown paper bag trying to collect myself. <sighs> okay, we also have X-Men Reload by Chris Claremont, Volume 2, House of M, and X-Men Shattershot. Yeah, X-Men Shattershot, super cool too. All right, uh, last thing we got to talk about is Marvel Unlimited. This week, a uh, bunch of great stuff in there, including the first issue of Black Cat, which is a terrific damn story. If you are subscribed to Marvel Unlimited, I beseech you, Read Black Cat number one. It's going to like blow your mind away. Like, why was I not reading this already? There's other great stuff in here, including issue six of Captain Marvel, which is a fantastic series. Guardians of the Galaxy annual number one was really, really good. Plenty more in there, including War of the Realms number five, a couple other War of the Realms tie-in issues, and old school stuff, Defenders issues 138 through 151, getting that old Defenders vibe, which is nice. All right, this episode of Marvel's Pull List was produced by MR Daniel with the help from Jorge Estrada, with uh, our audio development manager being Lauren Wiener, and Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. Reminder that the hashtag who is the real ghostwriter, you can also hashtag smash the logo to send us any of Ooh. your favorite logo smashing covers. Engagement. Yeah. All You know what? You got it, Tucker. <laughs> yeah. That's it. I'm Ryan. I'm Tucker. This is Marvel. Your universe.